All right, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We left off last Wednesday night at verse 33. We will pick it up there, and I would like to be able to get through 12. We'll see if we make it that far or not. But we left off with the, um, the sign of Jonah that the Lord uh, uses as the only sign that he's going to give this generation. That's where we left off. I didn't want to rush. So let's pick it up at verse 33 as he goes into now the parable of the lighted lamp. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or even under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. Now, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, and having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light. And when the bright shining of a lamp of a lamp gives you light. Now, the, the whole idea here is um, having a candle. The purpose of a candle is to illuminate a room. Um, Jesus is the light of the world. It's been passed on. Um, this knowledge, whatever we open this book and read it, um, we have the light of the world. One of uh, the seven I am statements of um, John's gospel. Looking forward to get, getting into John's gospel. It's written around seven miracles and seven I am statements. Uh, in contrast, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic gospels because they're similar. John is not. John has one goal in mind, and that is the deity of Jesus Christ. So one of the seven I am statements is I am the light of the world. And he came into um, this world to make some of us his light bearers. We're also called ambassadors. We're also called a peculiar people. And the idea is not to cover it up. Um, This valuable book that we hold in our laps and the truth that it contains, we're not supposed to um, cover it up, but hold it up. Good place for an amen. I mean, our whole, um, people will spend their whole life looking for a cause and a reason to exist. Your reason to exist is to um, hold your light high, as we're going to read here in just a minute, that um, um, those who will confess him before Ben, he'll confess before his Father in heaven. But those who deny him, uh, he will also deny them. So this first parable of the lighted lamp is a whole idea that he has come. The light of the world has come into a very dark world. And as a result, our job is to hold that lamp up high. Now, from verses 37 
all the way through chapter 12, verse 12, just look at that for a second, we're going to have one main theme. So from 37 all the way through chapter 12, verse 12, we'll go through it verse by verse, but the one thought that we have here is a pronouncement of woes. And the real war that is taking place today is not a political one, it's not a military one, it is a spiritual one. We're told that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in high places. There's a real spiritual war taking place. Now facilitating the very heart of this war is religion. You heard me right. The greatest enemy to the church today is religion. And what the Lord is going to do is pronounce a series of four woes on the religious establishment of his day. And as we pick it up in verse 37, he spoke to a certain Pharisee and he asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat and when the Pharisee saw it, well, he marveled that he did not first wash before he ate dinner. But the Lord says, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of wickedness and greed. So imagine sitting down for supper. The Pharisees have the very elaborate ritual that they go through before um, they will eat. The Lord didn't do any of that. He just sat down and started eating, and the jaw of the Pharisee drops. Letting me liken it to something that we could identify with more today. Okay, we go over to some friend's house, and um, before um, we eat, uh, they do this. And you just kind of sit there, and you don't do that, because <laughs> you're not used to doing that. So we call it crossing yourself. And um, it's a religious tradition. And um, it is a symbol that would be very similar to the one that the Lord is doing here. Uh, he was, um, he omitted a ceremonial cleansing, which was a religious rite. This is a religious rite that people do. Uh, they'll do it when they come into the church, before they'll sit down, they'll do it. And uh, before they eat, they do it. And um, it is a, Something, if you want to study on prayer and how the Lord did it, we've been learning that when he prays, it says he looked up. <laughs> and we're used to looking down and, and bowing our head. So the whole concept here is now the Lord turns the table on the religious leader, and he said, basically calling him a hypocrite, he said, you're, you're full of greed and wickedness. You know, you put a good outward show on, you know, by doing the, the very ceremonial um, hand cleansing thing. You can see it at the Western Wall when you go to Jerusalem. Um, they'll give you a little skull cap to put on. But the Orthodox have a special place uh, where they can't touch the utensil. The water has to be running. And then they can't, they got to let it drip, drip off. It's a whole, it's a, something just to stand on, like just to stand and watch them do it. But it's a custom a religious um, custom that they had. 
<laughs> Bob Bennett wrote a song about this very thing, observing the tradition of it, but then having, what was the title of the song? Um, um, I shouldn't do stuff like this, should I? Now I'm looking for a title and I can't find it. The whole gist of it is he gotten taken by one of these religious leaders at the Western Wall, and he wrote a song about it. So this guy comes up to him and says, can I pray for you? And um, what's your name? What's your wife's name? What's your family's name? And uh, he went on and made this great big show of this prayer. And it was very much outward. And uh, Bob didn't know what was going on. And this was happening right in front of the Western Wall in, uh, in the old city of Jerusalem. And then when, when, when it was all over, uh, the guy asked straight out if he could uh, have some money. And Bob, and you have to have the, the genius of Bob because Bob put it in such clever words of um, uh, getting ripped off at the railing wall. Uh, next week I'll tell you the title of that song. I'm going to find it and then I'll let you know what it is. But that's what the Lord is saying here. Outwardly, you guys, you put on this great show. But inwardly, you have a completely different motive. And you're full of wickedness and greed. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have. Then indeed all things are clean to you. Now we begin with the first woe. Woe to you Pharisees. For you tithe of mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Let's point out a couple things in 41 and 42. They had false, (coughs) excuse me, Um, allergies are up again. Uh, They had false values. He's not saying that it was wrong to tithe. They would uh, tithe of uh, the mint that they would gather off off, off their trees. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Those are mine. This one, Lord's yours. And they would be very uh, meticulous about making sure they tithe on everything. So the Lord is not saying, um, he's saying these things you ought to have done without leaving out the others undone. The weightier matters. And the weightier matters is giving of your substance. Um, that doesn't make you a Christian. However, if you love the Lord, you will give of your, of your substance. But they were um, doing it, uh, and we would say missing the forest for the trees. Uh, all with the wrong motive, so it could be seen by men and not as a, an act. So we have the first woe there. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in a synagogue and the greetings in the marketplaces. Uh, They, of course, um, uh, stick out very, very easily. And um, some of them are sincere. I wouldn't say all of them. Uh, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. I'm going to come back to Nick a little bit later. But he was a sincere religious Pharisee. 
came to Jesus by night. He had questions. He was troubled because he wanted what Jesus had. And he says, nobody can do what you're doing unless God is with him. And so the Lord cuts right to the quick. He says, Nick, I know why you're here. Um, You want more of God, but you're not gonna get it through religion. You must be born again. Now, who is he saying this to? He was saying it to a religious Pharisee. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. We have woe to you Pharisees. Does that mean all Pharisees? No. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was one that actually saw it out tonight. I will point out that he did it when nobody saw him. Uh, He didn't want to be seen asking these questions, but nonetheless they were there. He says, for he loved the best place in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace. Number three of the woes in verse 44, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. I suppose if there's one thing the Lord couldn't stand, it was hypocrisy. And his problem with all this we're gonna get into in just a little bit is that the people looked to them as religious leaders And um, they were actually uh, keeping people back from knowing the Lord. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not uh, seen, and men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers, don't think of as a lawyer as we would think of a lawyer today, we talked about this on Sunday, or last week sometime, but one who would uh, interpret the scriptures. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you approach us also. You're not only blaming the the Pharisees and the scribes, but when you start picking on those guys, don't you realize we're a part of the same group? You're approaching us too. And he said, Woe to you also. (laughs) So now we have the four woes. You lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Religious obligations. And let's just camp on this just a little bit. What religious obligation do you have that the Lord wants from you? This was a question the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, what work can we do to have eternal life? That was the question. What outward thing can we do? And believe me, they had a lot of them. And he said to them, there's only one, and that is to believe on him who the Father has sent. Period. Is that it? It has to be it. Because if you do any of these things, now we're talking about the category of works. And Paul talks about this. You can have works or you can have grace, but you can't have both. It's either one or the other. So in the way religion is set up today, it carries with it the idea of some sort of obligation or work that you need to do And what the Bible clearly teaches is, no, you have to be perfect. If you're going to keep the law, talks about the law, keep it. 
but you have to keep it perfectly. That means you could have never told a lie. You could have never stole anything. You could have never looked at a woman or a man with a lustful look. Uh, I think I've gone far enough with killing everybody here. (laughs) And so when we realize that's the law, that it's nothing more, Paul later talks about it being a, a teacher, a schoolmaster, to show us that we can't do it. And that it has to be grace. Because if it's not grace, then we don't stand a chance. So when we read here, woe to you, lawyers, for you load men with burdens. What? Hard works that they couldn't do themselves, but they were laying them on the people. Verse 47, woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets of your fathers, and you killed them. I think of Jeremiah here. I identify. And um, I have to admit, um, <laughs> when I see what's going on in the world today, I get downright depressed. Do you know that it's okay to be depressed? When I think of getting depressed, I think of Jeremiah. They don't call him the weeping prophet for nothing. He did not have a good news message. And no way or shape or form was it happy clappy. And number one, I don't believe there's going to be a last day revival. The Bible teaches just the opposite. The Bible teaches there's going to be a last day falling away. That's what it teaches. And only those that I believe are really rooted and grounded and know this book really, really well will talk about it a little bit when the Lord talks about make sure you're watching, discerning the signs of the times. The only way I know that you can discern the signs of the times is to be a really good student of the Bible and know what the Bible has to say about Bible prophecy. Good place for an amen. And unless we have our nose in the book and do exactly what we're doing tonight, um, you'll see that the Lord warns against something that they couldn't do, but they had no problem laying that guilt trip on other people. I think of the faith movement today. And somebody who... Um, has a serious illness and they pray for them but they're not healed. And then they tell that person, well, the reason you're not healed is you just didn't have enough faith. And if you only would have had enough faith, everything would be fine. Well, that's kicking a guy when he's down. That's, that's just loading up more condemnation. It's not setting him free. No. Um, Timothy was sick uh, with stomach problems. You don't think that Paul laid hands and prayed for him? Of course he did. He was his Timothy. Um, Paul prayed three times to have his thorn in the flesh removed. And there's times when the Lord, for whatever reasons, um, doesn't heal. So, well, let's, let's follow this on here. Verse 48, in fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, and they indeed killed them, and you built their tombs. God would send the prophets. They would not listen to the prophets. They killed the prophets. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them you will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. Now the light of the world has come. Now the ones the prophets talked about is actually here. 
from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. And here's the woe again. This, these are all to the interpreters of the scriptures, the lawyers. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourself, and those who were entering in you, you're hindered. Well, how were they hindering people from coming close to God? Answer, by adding on to these religious obligations that the Lord shattered by not washing his hands at the dinner table. And um, because that was a big, no, no, you just don't do that. You don't think the Lord did it on purpose? I believe he did it on purpose. He could have went in there and followed tradition and, and did all this. No, he wanted to call this guy out and point out his hypocrisy. All right, as we go into um, verse 53, and as he said these things to them, what's the reaction? The scribes and the Pharisees, along with the, the uh, lawyers, began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things. Now, they thought they knew it all. <laughs> I like to say this. It's tough to play mind games with the creator of the mind. <laughs> so they think they're going to have an argument with the Lord, and they're going to win. So they begin this cross-examination with the creator, laying in wait and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him, setting him up over and over and over again. They all caught in the act of adultery. That was all set up. It was nothing more than a way to say, well, they say he's a friend of sinners, but he says he also came to keep the law. The law said she's an adulterer and she's got to die. What do you say, Jesus? You see, as far as, as they were concerned, it didn't matter what he said. They, were, they would have him. Because if he said, forgive this woman, that goes against the law. But if he says, stone her, that goes against everything that he came not to judge now, but to set people free. And so what does he do? Well, turn the tables on him. And he said, okay, go ahead, stoner. Oh, but first, let the guy without sin, let him be the one who casts the first stone. That's the rule. And it says from the eldest, he began to write in his hand, and, and I'm sure he was writing down the sins of, I think he wrote the name of the person down, Levi, adulterer. And then he looks at Levi, and Levi takes off. It says from the eldest to the youngest, all of a sudden nobody's there. And he looks at the woman and he says, woman, where are your accusers? She says, none here, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Was he condoning her sin? Absolutely not. Was he able to set those guys in their place? Oh, they had him trapped. And he untrapped himself. Um, But verse 53 and 54, as we take this in context, they are looking for anything to get him, to cross-examine him. All right, chapter um, 12. 
In the meantime, with an innumerable multitude of people who had gathered together, so they trampled on one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now leaven in the scriptures is always something that's not good. Um, He says, Paul writes in Corinthians, don't you know that a little leaven will leaven everything out? A little bit of sin, if you let it go unchecked, will eventually permeate. Gals, mom used to make the best bread in the world. And uh, I could smell it when we walked through the door. But it's a process. Because it would have to, she would make it, and then she'd have to let it sit so that the yeast in the bread would permeate the bread, then she could bake it. Um, Not too many people have homemade bread uh, these days. But leaven is always used in a negative sense in the Bible. So he says, beware of the leaven. Oh, it's just a little bit of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And again, um, the one thing that the Lord bothered the Lord more than anything was this hypocrisy. There's nothing covered, here's the rationale, that will not be revealed nor hidden which will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark uh, will be heard in the light and what you have spoken in the ear in the upper rooms will be proclaimed on the housetop. And I say to you, my friends, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do to you. Here, the Lord takes um, um, death straight on. And uh, he says, don't worry about it. Don't fear anybody that could uh, kill you because that's all they can do. He says, but I will show you whom you should fear Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Now, again, um, uh, universalism is out there. Universalism, again, is a teaching and doctrine that there is no hell, or you're not, uh, or that uh, no, everybody goes to heaven. Um, um, the annihilationist will tell you that once you die, you die, and it's over. There is no hell. Um, the Lord clearly says just the opposite. Yes, I say unto you, fear him. Everybody's going to die. But the question is, where do you go when you die? Are not five sparrows sold? Oh, before I go any farther, let's just deal with the, the right meaning for the word fear here. Um, it's a reverence. It's a, where we stand in awe of uh, what the fear of the Lord really is. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So to have a reverence and a humility because God exists, you, you can't uh, be proudful and be in the presence and be conscious of an almighty God. 
Uh, My case in point is Isaiah chapter six, where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And when he saw him and his on his throne in the the veil that filled the temple, he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He went from just being a normal guy to being in the presence of God and all of a sudden he was humbled. Same thing happened to Peter. Um, When they caught no fish all night, the Lord said, okay, let's go fishing. Well, we fished all night, Lord, they're they're not biting. (laughs) <laughs> and he said, but because you say so, we'll, we'll go anyway. And so they went out, and they filled up their boat. They had to call in other people because that, that boat began to sink. It had so many fish in. And Peter woke up, and he realized whose presence he was in. And he simply fell on his face, and he said, Lord, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? You you can't be proud when you're in the presence of the Lord. In Proverbs 1, 7, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, this awareness. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and good understanding have those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. The natural response of being in God's presence is this acknowledgement that he is and it's a fearful thing in a reverent way to be in his presence um, because of his holiness that's there. The last one, if you're taking notes, is Proverbs 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. So when we read here, don't fear him that can kill just the body, but fear him who can not only kill the body, but at judgment time is the one who decides whether a person is accepted as grace and goes to heaven or hell. Verse six. Then he begins to go from fear to try to tell you how important you are to him. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him will the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now this is to be made personal. Um, I've said this a hundred times, but I stand in awe and amazement of a couple factors. The billions of galaxies, the billions of stars, and the size of our universe. He says you'll never be able to count them or number them. There's just too many. Trillions of billions of galaxies that contain billions and trillions of stars. Now what blows my mind about what I just said is that he calls them all by name. (laughs) 
He calls them all by name. If that doesn't cause your head to go kaboom, I don't know what will. But the other thing that always amazes me is between here and here and here and here. If you take uh, um, a ruler and just measure it, and now we have, what, eight or nine billion people on the planet, not counting all the ones that have been before us, and each one of them, unless you're an identical twin, I mean an identical identical twin, you're going to look different than somebody else. And you only got this much room to work with to pull this off. So we all look different, okay? Let's take it a step farther. I can pick up the phone and recognize a person's voice without telling me who they are. I know who this is, they're not telling me. Why? Because you have a voice that's different than mine. Mine's different from myself right now (laughs) because of uh, the high uh, pollen that's out there in the mold. But it's just mind-boggling that what he is saying here, he's going from fear of the Lord, have reverence for him, but let me tell you how much value you are to him. We judge the value of something by its rarity. The more rare a substance, the more valuable it becomes. Therefore, there's only one of you. Therefore, that makes you very valuable, and that's what he says right here. So we all have two eyes, two ears, one mouth, so on and so forth, but we all look different. We all have different voices. We all have different personalities. And yet, there's billions of us, and it's just a mind-boggling feat that only um, a creator of such knowledge and wisdom and ability, that should also cause us to walk humbly uh, before our God. We get into the reality of never being ashamed to say, I am a Christian. Um, When a person first becomes a believer, it says, believe and be baptized. If you have not been baptized since you've been a believer, you should be baptized. We've got a baptism coming up next month. And if you haven't been baptized, you should. Well, Dwight, I'm in, I'm in my 70s now. And, um, you know, I've been a Christian all these years. And why should I do that? The answer to the question is because Jesus said so. How's that for an answer? <laughs> so um, it's a way of confessing that you are Christian before people. And you don't give a hoot who's watching. You're making an outward declaration that I am not ashamed to be called a Christian. And here I am, a grown man getting dunked in water that to the world is complete foolishness and nonsense, but not to those of us who know him. Why do we do it? Simple and act of obedience. I like to tell people, if you can be obedient in the first things he tells you, then as time goes on, you will learn obedience, period, and we call him Lord because we should be acknowledging him in everything we do. Good place for an amen? Because why? Because he's supposed to be the Lord of our life. My Bible says acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways, not just some of them, not just part of them. Jesus is not a part of your life, 
Paul said, Jesus is my life. And so we're not in the driver's seat anymore. Love Song wrote a song about it, backseat, frontseat driver. And uh, he, they learned that they had to get out, out from behind the steering wheel because they have to get in the backseat now. The Lord's doing the driving. And so here, the word is don't be ashamed. And let people know. Let people know on, on your job who you are, what you stand for. They know you're not perfect, but they're watching you. And here, um, clearly it says, because um, just the fact that I'm doing a Bible study tonight, I'm confessing Jesus Christ to you guys. So the Bible tells me that someday Jesus is going to confess me before the angels of God. Wow. You can just let that sink in for a while. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, I'm going to touch on this, but um, I went into more detail on it on Sunday or maybe last Wednesday, I can't remember. Was it Sunday? Okay, so um, the, the simple idea is all, every sin can be forgiven. And we use the example of Ahab, because he was the worst of all the kings. But remember when he humbled himself, uh, the Lord forgave him and withheld the judgment until the next generation. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply this. When a person hears that God sent his only begotten son into the world to die for you, to die for me, so that you would not perish but have everlasting life. And there's that awareness of truth that rings with that. You have one of two options. You can accept it or reject it. If you accept it, um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 comes in, he who knew no sin became sin for you. And then he gave you his righteousness. So we have what we call the great exchange. Uh, you become righteous in God's eyes, yet he took all of your sin. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is after hearing this truth and you say, no, I happen to believe in reincarnation. I happen to believe in Hinduism. I happen to believe in karma. I happen to believe in Allah. Go and fill in the blank. Anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you're looking for salvation and rejecting the real gospel, you have now committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. That's why he is the only way. Can you see as time goes on how politically uncorrect that is going to become? As we see things becoming more socialistic and liberal and um, um, anything goes, the church, if it's really shining as light, is standing up and saying, no, that, there's a difference between right and wrong. This is right, this is wrong. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that. You have a conscience. And because you have a conscience, you know that this is right and this is wrong. And God's gonna, like we just read here someday, don't think he can cover it up because I'm, the day is coming when I'm gonna expose it all. And uh, it'll all be seen. So you won't be able to hide it. The blasphemy 
of the Holy Spirit is when a person rejects Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's the only sin that can't be forgiven because um, Jesus is the only one that paid the price for our sin. Let's go on to verse 11. Now, when they bring you to the synagogue and the magistrate and authorities, don't worry about what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Um, We've heard the expression, we're not to walk in the flesh, we're to walk in the spirit. I would like to be able to stand before you and say, I don't want to give a Bible study unless I feel the Lord has given me the Bible study. And um, um, I believe that with my whole heart. I, I want to be able to say like Paul, that which I received from the Lord, I've given to you. And you know my safety blanket? And most of the Calvary chapels is a safety blanket is doing what we're doing tonight. Reading it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, not taking it out of context, just looking at it and reading it for what it says. And um, uh, so we have the first, remember I said that from chapter 11, verse 37 through chapter 12, verse 12, um, basically one thing is, is being stated here, and, and that is um, um, the consequences of hypocrisy, and, but, and yet the Lord's um, warning in verse three here, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Let's take it to verse 13, where we have uh, the parable of the rich fool. One thing I'll point out as we get into this parable, um, and this especially applies when we talk about the rich man and Lazarus, because it's called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And one of the rules of interpreting parables is that if a proper name is used in it, it's not a parable, it's a real, true story. Now, this is hypothetical because we don't have the guy's name. It's simply an illustration where, in verse 13, then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said, Man, who made be a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said, Take heed and beware of covetousness. I want to stop and say the issue here is not materialism or stuff. I don't know, I don't know what you guys like to call it. I, I just like to call it stuff. And you know what? I have way too much stuff. <laughs> I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with stuff as long as you're not coveting stuff. So let's stop there and talk about this man had a covetous problem. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And then he spoke a parable saying that the ground of a certain rich man yielded plenty. And he thought within himself saying, what should I do? Since I have no more room to store my crops. So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns, build greater ones. I will store up my crops, my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, You have many goods laid up for many years. Take it easy. We'd say kick back. Eat, drink, and be merry. 
But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? And so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now we read on Sunday, verse 34 down here, for where your treasure is, that where your heart be also. That's where you can always tell. You can give yourself the litmus test, your self-evaluation, and talk it out between you and yourself. Where do your priorities lie? Where do you invest your time? Where do you invest your money? And um, it'll be manifested in this way. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 17. Give you a moment to get there. So let's make our way back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. When we get to the Tenth Commandment, we have in verse 17 the problem with the parable of covetousness. Covetousness is actually the tenth commandment of the ten commandments. You shall, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor his Harley David's, ah, uh, not, that's not in there nor anything that is your neighbor's. What belongs to your neighbor's does not belong to you. And this whole idea is nothing wrong in having it as long as you're not coveting it and wanting it for yourself. Let's go back to Luke. And so we find in Luke chapter 12, here was a guy whose problem is nothing wrong with material possessions. The problem comes when you get to the point of wanting what the Joneses have, to the point of coveting them. That's the problem. The 10th commandment clearly lays that out. But he was a fool because his attitude is, well, I'm just gonna kick back, and boy, when I retire, I'm gonna live it up. But he didn't know that that night he was gonna die. So now everything he'd worked for up to that point, he can't take it with him. And um, the Lord called him a fool because he said your, your soul is required of you. We all have an appointment. We don't know when it is. It is appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. Brings us to verse 22 through 34. Um, I, I love this section here. We studied it this, this last week. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Now consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, but God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And here's the rationale. Go ahead and worry if you want to. Which of you by worrying can add one, I'd say one inch to your statue? Um, Okay, this is for anybody who's worrying about something tonight. Go ahead, lose sleep over it. It's not gonna do you one 
bit of good. That's what this is saying here. You, it's not going to change a thing by you worrying. If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious? I mentioned this, that the word anxiety comes from this word here, anxious. Why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Well, we went back and did a whole study on Solomon. His wages, his um, wealth, his wisdom, and the Lord is saying, even Solomon, with all that he had, isn't as beautiful as um, these lilies of the field. And if God so clothed the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? The Lord will take care of you. Our job is to um, not worry about it. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. Anxiousness, always worried about something. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Got to do this, got to do that. No, got to seek first the kingdom. Abide in the Lord. Um, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. You can't have your mind stayed on the Lord and experience perfect peace and be anxious and worried about something else. They cancel out each other. It's one or the other. It's like light and dark. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, boy, especially in America. You know, the amount of money that's spent on advertising for something that you need. I saw a fertilizer machine on TV on the news tonight that they're bringing over, but it costs a million dollars. <laughs> I want to know what farmer can afford one of those fertilizers. But it's good for the environment. I'm not bad speaking to say I think probably it's a a great uh, uh, tool to have. Um, But all these things, the point is that they should be secondary to where our heart really is. But seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Do not fear, little flock. For it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide for yourself money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that do not fail. uh, Where no thief approaches nor moths destroy. And I love this verse. It's just so precious. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So this is where, again, it's nobody's job but yourself to do self-evaluation. We get now into a parable of the person who is waiting for the coming of the Lord. It's never been more true than in the generation that we're living in right now, 35 through 40. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Um, in our staff meeting yesterday and today as we talked about it, um, uh, we decided to title the Prophecy Conference um, Lamps Lit. And, and it might be something about keeping your lamp 
lit. Everybody knows the parable of the virgins, five are wise, five are foolish, the wise ones had their lamps lit. That might not be the exact title, but this is where we're getting it from right here. That in Matthew 25. And your lamps burning, in other words, watching, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. Now I'm going to be building up to something here. I have the word wait underlined for their master when he will return from the wedding and when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master when he comes will find watching. Assuredly I say unto you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. Blessed doing what? They're watching. They're waiting. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you be also ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect him. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about um, imminency, the imminent return. This word wait down here in verse 36 of watching. It, it, uh, it demands the question, watching for what? And in Matthew 24, this was when the disciples thought the kingdom had come and the Lord said, you see that temple? It's gonna be destroyed. And it had to blow their minds. He was the Messiah. How can the temple be destroyed? And they were basically saying, you mean it's not now? The kingdom isn't coming right now? So then they began to ask questions. They say, well, if that's the case, Lord, then what's the sign, singular? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That was the question. As a result of the Lord telling them the temple was gonna be destroyed by the way it was. When he said it, it was 32 AD. When it was fulfilled, it was 70 AD, and it was done by the Romans. Uh, according to Daniel 9, verse 26, and a seven-year period of time just given to Israel in Daniel 9, 27, if you're taking notes. Then he says, but know this, therefore you be also ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you did not expect him. The rapture is an event where we should be waking up every morning and say, you know what? It could happen today. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, let's move on just a little bit because I do want to develop this thought. And this is the parable of the faithful steward concerning this idea of waiting on the Lord and what has crept into the church in these last days is taking away um, what I call the imminent return or that it could happen at any time. It's under challenge today. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, who then is that wise steward who his master will make ruler over his household to give them their possession of food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master 
will find so doing when he comes. I kind of hope the Lord comes during a Sunday morning uh, Bible study worship service. <laughs> and not when I'm watching some sports show or something. <laughs> Bastia's father, before he died at the age of 48, um, in rural Haiti, in Kearney, in the same, about a mile from where the church is now. Uh, he preached a Sunday morning message at the age of, age of 48, uh, walked out the church door, and fell over dead. That's how I want to go. <laughs> no, I take that back. I want to be raptured. <laughs> that would be my second choice. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Well, Revelation makes this clear. What are we going to do in heaven? Well, gang, we're not going to get to heaven for a thousand years. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, but it clearly tells us in Revelation that we're going to rule and reign with him on the new earth for 1,000 years. Good place for an amen. We're not sitting on some cloud with a harp and and, um, little Michelangelo angels flying around with look like little bees. No, none of that. We're, we're in administrative positions to rule and reign with him. And that's why he says here in verse 44, I will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Please underline that, these words. Delaying my coming. And begins to beat the men servants and maid servants to eat, drink, and be drunk. The master of the servant will come at a day when he's not looking for him and an hour he is not aware of and will cut him in a portion uh, with the unbelievers. Now let's go back to verse 45. If that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. This can only be said of the pre-trib rapture. If you hold any other view than this verse slam dunks it away. Because if, you, if we're saying he's delaying his coming, that means that he's actually looking and waiting for him. Goes on to say, those who have this hope of the rapture, it says they purify themselves even as he is pure. In other words, if you think the Lord could really come tonight, or he could come before the end of this week. What kind of effect, if you really believe that, is that gonna have on your life? Well, one of being ready, one of not messing around in the world, and but as soon as you say, my Lord is delaying his coming, if you take any other position, Calvary chapels are pre-trib, so I'm not trying to stir a pot here. This is what we've always believed. Why? Because that's what the Bible teaches. Where? Right here. If, if you put the, uh, the rapture anywhere in the book of Revelation past chapter six or seven, you're in the tribulation period. And the first thing that happens in the tribulation is Revelation 6.1, if you're taking notes, is revelation of the Antichrist. So um, if that's the case, then you're saying, well, the Lord can't come because the Antichrist has to be revealed first. 
Again, you can't dance around this verse. You can't explain it away. You can't say that that isn't really what it means. If the idea here is the Lord is delaying his coming, the implication is he could come at any time. And as soon as you start watching for the Antichrist, this verse becomes non-existent. You can't take it away. You can't change it. Either you're waiting for the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're saying, no, 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 it's gotta happen mid-trib. Well, if it's happening mid-trib, then we're looking for the Antichrist instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is just one verse, and um, I'm not going to give an in-depth Bible study on the the pre-trib except to say that's what we've always believed, and it's part of the Calvary Chapel distinctives, and I'm just making a statement of something in one of the verses why we hold to that position. A lot of controversy over it today. Verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know that committed these things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, he will ask the more. Um, I I think we um, um, have been given a lot, having the whole counsel of God. And as a result, I think the Lord will hold us accountable to sound doctrine. What's my time? Okay, and how much do I have left? Um, Let's finish it out quickly. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it was already kindled. Interesting would say that. I meditated on this next verse today, what the Lord said. What he's saying here is I wish we were already getting ready to kindle the fire of the tribulation. But first he says I have a baptism to be baptized with and how, and I have this underlined, distressed I am till it is accomplished. We have no idea, some couple verses, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that the thought of what Jesus was about to do by taking on the sins of the world put such pressure on him, it says he sweat great drops of blood. And here he says himself, I am distressed until it's accomplished. Till what's accomplished? Till he can say, it is finished. Do not suppose that I came to give peace on earth. A lot of people think that's what Jesus came to do. Is that what the Christmas carol says? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men? No, that's not exactly the translation. It's those will have peace who have made peace with the Prince of Peace. I tell you not at all. Otherwise, we do have a contradiction in scriptures. He says, from now on, five and one house will be divided. Three against two. Two against three. Father will be divided against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law against brother-in-law. Well, I thought we were supposed to all be able to get along once we become Christians. Is that what the Bible teaches? Just the opposite. It teaches just the opposite. When you take a serious stand for the Lord and somebody in your family member doesn't, it causes division. 
And what should that cause us to do when we read this? We go, amen, it sure does. And that should reassure you that um, um, when you take a stand for the Lord, it brings a sword that causes division. Let's finish up the chapter. Then he said to the multitudes, when you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there it is. You hypocrites, you can discern the weather uh, face of the sky and the earth, but how is it you cannot discern this time? Well, let's see, rain tonight, nice day all day tomorrow. Sunny all day long. Friday, back into a rain cycle. Saturday, partly scattered showers. Sunday, partly scattered. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of next week, according to tonight's weather, I can discern that. All I have to do is listen to the weatherman. And he tells me exactly what it's going to be. He says, if you guys can figure that much out. He says, how much more can you not discern the time? Well, what's he talking about? He's going back to the question that the disciples asked in Matthew 24. Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The answer, my friends, is the nation of Israel. That after 2,000 years, it's back in the land. He would gather them again a second time. Matthew 24, the parable of the sower, the Lord says the generation, the people that see that happen, will see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. And yet, who is teaching Bible prophecy today? Very, very few. You want the sign? You want a miracle? No ethnic group has ever been out of its nation, dispersed more than a couple of generations. Israel's been out for 2,000 years. They've come back. They learned a language that wasn't even the language in Jesus' time. Aramaic was the main language then. Oh, they spoke Hebrew. But now when you go to Israel, the main language is Hebrew. He said he would restore the native tongue. Has he done that? Yep, he has. Has he regathered uh, the whole, uh, well, that's a whole study that I don't have time and I passed my time already. But discerning the times, Well, the discernment is the nation of Israel. In other words, it's late. And um, we're not to be looking for the Antichrist. Now, just think for a second. What would my attitude be if I thought to myself, you know, I know when the Antichrist comes, Daniel 9, verse 27, he signs a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. So as soon as some man signs a peace treaty with Israel for seven years, I go, there he is. Now, if I'm waiting for that to happen, what can that do in my attitude and my heart? I think it can fall back to this place where the people are saying they don't have this imminent view where the Lord could come, where it's making me watch my P's and my Q's. I think it creates a whole different mentality. I could mess around if I want to a little bit. I haven't seen the Antichrist show up yet. And so the whole reasoning here um, of watching and discerning the times. Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with you to your adversary to the magistrate, 
Make every effort along the way to settle it with him. Lest he drag you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officers. And the officers throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from here till you have paid the very last minute. The thought that I'd like to leave with as we get and finish 12, you didn't think I could do it, did you? I know you guys. Well, I really didn't. I cheated and I took a little extra time. I stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, your word tells us that you call us servants, uh, you call us friends and not servants. And you call us friends because you say that a master, a friend will tell a friend everything. But a master um, will not tell a servant everything that he's going to do. Thank you, Lord, that you've laid it all out, what you expect of us, uh, to be in that place of watching for you, warning us against hypocrisy and covetousness, and not to worry. For any of us that are worried about anything or anxious tonight, Lord, help us uh, fall back on that scripture that uh, where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. Lord, capture our heart again this evening, and we thank you for your word so much. In Jesus' name, amen. They don't have this imminent view where the Lord could come, where it's watch me, making me watch my P's and my Q's. I think it creates a whole different mentality. Yeah, I could mess around if I want to a little bit. I haven't seen the Antichrist show up yet. And so the whole reasoning here um, of watching and discerning the times. Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with you to your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle it with him. Lest he drag you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officers. And the officers throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from here till you have paid the very last minute. The thought that I'd like to leave with as we get and finish 12, you didn't think I could do it, did you? I know you guys. Well, I really didn't. I cheated and I took a little extra time. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, your word tells us that you call us servants, uh, you call us friends and not servants. And you call us friends because you say that a master, a friend will tell a friend everything. But a master um, will not tell a servant everything that he's going to do. Thank you, Lord, that you've laid it all out, what you expect of us, uh, to be in that place of watching for you, warning us against hypocrisy and covetousness, and not to worry. For any of us that are worried about anything or anxious tonight, Lord, help us uh, fall back on that scripture that uh, where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. Lord, capture our heart again this evening, and we thank you for your word so much. In Jesus' name, amen.